You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Um, we have a few folks that are out today. Um, if you don't know this, a uh, few months ago earlier this year, we sent out a group of people from this church to go plant a church in Lebanon, Ohio called Cedar City. And they are launching today. You may, if you were here early, uh, saw some of the photos um, sliding through the screens up here. Uh, they're kind of launching in a big way. They've uh, gathered in a whole other... Today's a big day, and so are our thoughts and our prayers, uh, hearts are with them and for them, that God would be on the move there as much as he is uh, here. So uh, excited about that and to hear how, how that went. But I have the privilege today of uh, not just preaching uh, a particular passage, but I also have the privilege of closing out uh, the series that we've been in for several weeks now through Paul's second letter to uh, the Corinthians. So Today, uh, my job is to, to not just preach a focal passage, but also to try to uh, do justice and honor to uh, the whole letter that Paul uh, wrote to that church in Corinth and that we get to receive and learn from today. So uh, the best way for me to do that, for us to, to, to think about this particular focal passage and for us to bring this passage to a close is to have uh, in mind all that Paul has written up to this point in the letter. So... My options are to, to maybe read all of 2 Corinthians to you right now, right? Everything we've read so far. Or, uh, or I can try to sum up maybe what we've heard uh, from Paul in his letter. So I'm going to go for the latter, uh, if that's okay with you. Uh, I spent a, a bunch of time in the whole letter this week and tried to, to paraphrase. This is, uh, this is not the message translation. I'm not Eugene Peterson who's trying to paraphrase uh, the scriptures in that way. This is not uh, scripture. Hopefully I don't have to qualify that for you, but... But I did want to, to try to paraphrase and bring to mind uh, all of the things, some of the things, the high points, the themes that Paul uh, has written to this church in Corinth because he brings many of those things back up here uh, in this final part of his letter as his closing, his final words to the church in Corinth. So what we're going to do, uh, I'm going to read uh, this kind of paraphrased letter uh, that is not scripture, all right, uh, and you will stay sitting in your seats and then when we're done with that, uh, as we're recalling to mind all the stuff that maybe we've heard together over these last several weeks, I will ask you to stand uh, when we read the actual Bible uh, and today's focal passage in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 11 through 13, 14. Sound good? And then we'll dig in. Is that cool? Is that all right? All right. So look, this is just like a page paraphrase. I'm not going to stand up here and read to you like a, a big, long, huge thing. This is my uh, attempt at at paraphrasing 2 Corinthians so far. Dear Corinthians, we've suffered greatly for you, and yet God has been our comfort and our salvation. Likewise, we hope that he might be your comfort and salvation too. I know we said we were coming to visit you again, but we changed our plans and decided not to come. I promise we're not flaky, just as God has been faithful to his promises by saying yes to all of them in Jesus. So we strive to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We chose not to come because we wanted to spare you from another painful visit. When we're together, I want it to be a joyful reunion, not a painful reckoning. I want you to know that I wrote my last letter in anguish and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to show you how much I really love you. 
If you doubt our leadership and need a letter of recommendation for our ministry, look no further than yourselves. You are the letter of recommendation, written by Jesus and delivered by us to the whole world. Despite what you might think, our ministry isn't one of condemnation, but of righteousness. It's a glorious thing. A lot of people won't understand this because not everyone sees Jesus for who he really is. For many, the eyes of their hearts are veiled. But for those of us who see him rightly, we're transformed bit by bit by his glory to reflect his glory. And if some don't get what we say or do, it's not because we've twisted the truth. It's because they're blind to it. Even though we're like pottery, we're fragile, cracked, chipped by the world on the outside, the life of Jesus that we're filled with on the inside is getting bigger and bigger. We don't lose heart because even though our outer selves are breaking apart, the hardships that we face are getting our inner selves ready for an eternal weight of glory that's bigger than we can imagine. And we know that not only will our inner selves continue to be renewed, but one day our outer selves will be made totally new. We'll put on new bodies that never crack or chip or break. In the end, all that's mortal will be swallowed up by immortality. Because of all this, we get to make our aim to please no one else but Jesus, no matter what comes our way. And Jesus has us aiming for reconciliation. He died for all so all might live for him. He knew no sin, and yet he became sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He makes us new creations with a new job, and that job is to let God's olive branch of reconciliation be extended to the world through us. So we're telling you, be reconciled to him too. I hope you haven't received this good news of God's reconciliation in vain. You've treated us as phonies, even though we're honest with you. As if you don't know us, even though you do. We've been slandered and dishonored, and we've endured even physical hardships for your sake. We've spoken freely to you. Our hearts are wide open. It's not us that's holding you back. You are. So, be reconciled to us, too. Open your hearts to us. But do not open your hearts to those who believe in false gods, let alone attach yourself to them. We have the promises of Jesus already. So rid yourselves from head to toe of all that's not from him, and instead live a life set apart by God and for God. God is alive, so live as if he lives in you and among you. We knew that we had done nothing wrong in the last letter that we wrote, but we still had many sleepless nights about how you'd receive it. The comfort and joy that comes from God allowed me to be bold with you, and you responded with a grief and a repentance that also comes from God. I'm so encouraged, not only by your response to my correction, but by your generosity toward the poor in Jerusalem. Praise God for that. You see, I'm not, I promise that I'm not two-faced, timid when I'm with you, and harsh only when writing to you from afar. With the same meekness and gentleness that Jesus has, I want to be humble when I'm with you, but that doesn't mean I won't or don't wage war against false teaching. I simply don't want you to think that I'm waging war against you when I'm really just trying to build you up. Our standard is Jesus, and yours should be too. We're not like those super apostles who are constantly one-upping and comparing themselves to one another. We don't brag about ourselves, but about the Lord. Beware those false teachers. Know that as these self-proclaimed super apostles are bragging to you and benefiting from you and telling you what you want to hear, we've been suffering for you and loving you with a greater, tougher love 
just like Jesus. He is better and longer than any of those super apostles, and not just because of my own hard work and talent, but because of supernatural revelations and visions from God, caught up into the heavens and seeing and hearing things about paradise that, that I can't say a word about. And yet, even in those things, God has reminded me that if my strength and power come from Him, my weakness doesn't get in the way. Instead of hating my weakness and bragging about my strengths, I've come to be content with my weakness, with insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, because it's God's grace that is sufficient for me and his power that rests on me all for Christ's sake. Would you stand up with me as we close out 2 Corinthians by reading 12, 11 through 13, 14, and it should be on the screens. Paul writes, I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself didn't burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself didn't burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for you. I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
You may be seated. So, hopefully that called to mind some of the things we've talked about, right? And, and this is how we're going today. Um, we're not going chunk by chunk. We're going to survey and observe some things about this passage and draw on some observations from the whole letter. And so our main idea today is that restoration is the hope and the work of the church. Uh, we're going to talk about how Paul, through this letter, reveals to us, one, the nature of ministry, two, the power of God, and three, what's actually inside you and me, all of us. So we'll start with number one. We'll look at how Paul reveals the nature of ministry to us. So uh, this series thus far has been called Suffering in Defense, right? That's been the, the whole series title the entire time we've been in here. And, and so we read uh, chapter twelve nineteen. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? To which we would say, well, according to the title slide, uh, yes, that's exactly what we thought we were doing. Um, but apparently Paul has something else in mind. And so has Paul been suffering? Yes, obviously he's been suffering. Uh, has Paul been defending himself throughout the whole letter? He's been defending himself in the ministry. And he's certainly been defending himself to the Corinthians, right? That's who he's corresponding with. So, so what is he talking about? What's the thing that maybe we're missing here? Uh, I have in my brain a, a picture of uh, a doctor and a patient, and they're in a room together, um, and the patient's sick. Uh, he's, he's not feeling well. Something's horribly wrong. Uh, and so he comes to the doctor to try to figure out what's going on. And so the doctor is, uh, she's trying to, to, to diagnose and prescribe and all that stuff, figure out what, what needs to happen there. And, and they're arguing. They're clashing because uh, the patient, right, has, has gone to the internet and, and Googled things, right, and found some sketchy websites, printed some stuff, and brought them to the, the, the patient room, to the doctor. And so the patient thinks, this is what I need, right? No, this is actually what's wrong with me. This is the treatment. I just need you to prescribe me whatever this shady website says that I need, right? And the doctor's saying, uh, no. My credentials, this is the recent research that I have read. Here are my certifications. Here's the continuing education that I received. All of this stuff, this is what you need in order to get better. And so they're clashing over this. And in the meantime, uh, right, the doctor is going through all of her credentials. That's what she's doing, defending herself. But, but in that scenario, the doctor's concern is not mainly for herself, right? The doctor's concern is for her, for her patient. She wants the patient to, to trust her, right, so that, so that her health, that the patient's health can increase and get better. And so she's defending herself, right, but, but she's really defending her patient's health just as much, if not more. And that's Paul's concern throughout this whole letter. He's not concerned about them thinking that he's great or whatever. His main concern is for the health of the Corinthians because they're sick. There is sin and there's false teaching and there's quarrels and slander and jealousy and all sorts of things going on in this church and he wants them to get better, but they're not listening to him. And so he's just saying, will you trust me, right? Help me help you. L listen to me, right? I want to care for you. And, and this shouldn't be too much to ask for, for them to trust Paul. Why? Because, because Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthians in the first place. He planted that church. He spent a year and a half with them the first time that he arrived there. This is his fourth letter to them. He's visited twice already, plans on going back a third time, and he eventually does. We read about that in Acts 20. He sent Timothy. He sent Titus and some other brother and other people on his behalf to them to care for them. This is not Paul angry tweeting at some random guy on the internet, 
right? Or some group of people. He's not some old man yelling at the sky or telling people to get off. He's, he is not extending himself beyond his area of influence. We read about that in chapter 12. In fact, Paul has every reason to have an, an influence over the church in Corinth because of this long... But the difficult relationships there in Corinth have made ministry difficult for him. And, and this is one of the things that we get to learn about the nature of ministry is that, that you can't separate ministry from relationships. And that's by design. When we talk about ministry, all right, just to be clear, we're talking about our work, the work that we have to do, right? It's not just something that Paul did for the Corinthians. It's not just something that pastors or people on stages do for those in the seats. The great commission was given to all of us to make mature and multiply disciples. It's not a one-way thing. It's something that we get to do together with one another, for one another in community. It's a whole church thing. And so Paul, we see this throughout his letter, he wants that area of influence to increase. He talks about this, I think it's in chapter 10. He wants as their faith to grow in the church, he, he wants their area of influence to go out. As they go deep, he wants the, the church to go wide and bring more people in. He expects them to own their faith and be a part of that. He expects them to be generous, right? To give, to live as generous disciples. He expects them to take care of discipline, right? When stuff goes awry in the church, he expects them to extend forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration happens. He expects them to fight for sound doctrine and to, to refute false teaching. He expects them to live holy lives. Paul, his whole work has been to equip the church to do the ministry, right? That's his job so he can partner with them and come alongside them and co-labor for the gospel. And the same is true for us. That's what ministry is for us here at the village. It's something that we all do together. And that's something that we do through relationships, right? Relationships are kind of the medium of ministry, the medium of God's work. It's, it's what ministry is done through. And, and those are obviously not one-way streets either. Those are two-way streets. We, we have relationships with one another. And when those relationships are good and healthy... Ministry is a beautiful thing, right? It's great to see fruit grow, and it's easy, and it can be fun. You can enjoy it, all sorts of things. But when relationships are broken and busted up, it is incredibly burdensome. It can be all the tougher. And that's where Paul finds himself. He's written past letters in anguish and affliction, sleepless nights, tears, all because it seems like the Corinthians just have an axe to grind against Paul. The signs and wonders that he did, not enough, right? We feel like we're being gypped, that, that those other churches, they're being favored more than we are. Even he didn't burden them, right? He didn't take their money, like as if to avoid the charge of just being in it for, for the dough, right? All the cash that comes along with, with being a pastor or a church planter. Uh, but he says they, they don't care about that. They know that he didn't take his money, but, but he thinks that they're deceiving them anyway. They think that he's deceiving them anyway. That they're trying, he's trying to trap them or trick them in some way by acting pious and not taking money. And then it, it's like a, a clearly a personal thing because he says, I've sent Titus, I've sent Timothy, I've sent all these guys here, right? They've, they've walked and engaged with you in the same spirit that I have. Have we not done the same things that they've done? And yet for some reason you accepted them perfectly fine. You received them well with love and gratitude and me, you don't. And so this is seemingly something very personal between the Corinthians and Paul. And they're on the defensive, right? Paul's, Paul's changed plans. He has sent them letters of correction. They have sin 
uh, in their hearts that maybe their conscience is it's pricking them for and their flesh is responding to that. Uh, they have other influences, these super apostles that are coming along and trying to influence what they think. And there's Paul who's been sinned against, right? He's, he's been worried about what the Corinthians are going to think, how they're going to respond to the stuff that he's written before. There's all sorts of things that are going on that, that just set this up for, for false motives and making wrong assumptions, right? And, and just not seeing things rightly when it comes to relationships. And is, is this not real life today? In 2019? That our relationships can, can get busted up and messy and we can think that people meant something different by our words and how do you read a text message or an email? What's the tone that's going on there? Like all these things we can misunderstand. We, we feel the, the sting of sin in relationships. All of that stuff. And so look, ministry relationships. You can't separate the two apart and, and those things happen not just in court. Right? It's a real thing. And so, like, I've, I've gotten questions. I ask the question myself. Good questions from other people. How do I lead? How do I serve? How do I continue ministering? How do I do this thing? How do I, how do I try to be on mission with people and not make it hurt? How does it not become personal when the folks that I'm, I'm laboring alongside seemingly stab me in the back or, or attribute false motives to me? And the answer to that is that, is that you can't. You can't make it not hurt. You can't make it not personal. Because if it's not personal, then it's not ministry. Ministry is personal. It requires vulnerability and entering into each other's lives, Right? You can't separate ministry from relationships, even though you might want to. And and that's what our flesh wants us to do. It wants us to to become callous, right? All right, so we're just going to step back, become distant. I'm not going to let anyone in anymore, right? No one's going to touch me. I'm not going to let anybody into my life. I'm not going to invest in anyone lest they might turn around and stab me in the back. I'm going to get jaded and bitter, right? We see that stuff happen, this fight or flight response when sin and brokenness enters into relationships. But the true nature of ministry, as Paul shows us and as we learn here, is that, is that ministry just doesn't work through relationships, but ministry works on relationships. Relationships are the work. They are the work of ministry, in particular, broken relationships. And this should not be a surprise to us, because the Great Commission to make mature and multiply disciples uh, of all nations at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to lead them to observe all that Jesus has taught, which is summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. Relationships, right? And the whole reason Jesus had to come in the first place is because we botch those things all the time. Broken relationships are, are the work of ministry. It'd be like if, uh, uh, so in our neighborhood we have above ground power lines. Um, and we see squirrels all the time, like, skittering across the, the line. Um, every now and then, those squirrels step on something they shouldn't or chew on something they should not. And, uh, and then, hey, like, why did the fridge go out? Uh, why are the clocks blinking in the house? But the Hamilton City Utility Department, uh, at least as far as I know, when that happens, doesn't say, all right, guys, we have to go back to the drawing board and reinvent a, a new way of delivering electric current to the neighborhood, right? Scrap the wires, scrap the poles. We're going to have to figure out something new, right, to deliver electricity to the neighborhood. No, like, they, they don't do that. That would be ridiculous. They go to the source to work on the line. 
so that work might be done through the line and power might be restored right, to those neighborhoods. Things might function as they ought. And so in relationships, right, in ministry, that means revisiting the sources of pain. That means revisiting sin and, and the people maybe that, that we don't necessarily want to see in that moment. To revisit broken relationships for the sake of restoring those relationships. And there's a cost of discomfort and, and the risk of rejection and uncertainty and all those things. That's part of it. But Paul's response wasn't, wasn't fight and it wasn't flight when it came to his discord with the Corinthians. But a, but a third way. Paul writes, I don't seek what's yours, but I seek you. I'll gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I fear I may not find you as I wish, and you may not find me as you wish. I fear God may humble me, and I might have to mourn over the sin, sin that's been done to him. Though you might think that we failed, we want you to do what's right. Right? You might think that we failed the test, fine, we want you to succeed. We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. That's a, that's a Jesus-shaped response to, to broken relationships, a, a gospel-formed philosophy of ministry that doesn't flinch in self-defense, but that moves in faith towards the other person to work on the relationship. And, and Paul's aim in this isn't even ultimately for earthly or mutual understanding or restoration, although I'm sure that would be really nice. But his aim is for heavenly restoration between them and Jesus, right? You might think we failed. You might think we're, we're out of the kingdom, right? Fine. We want you to pass the test. We want you to be restored in your relationship to Jesus. It's your restoration that we pray for, Paul says. So we might never be 100% cool, Again, all right, this might not ever be a, a chummy relationship at this point, but going forward, my relationship with you, it's not defined by you or the sin that you've done against me, but, but it's defined by Jesus. So I'm going to speak in Christ. I'm going to speak in the sight of God for your upbuilding. This is Paul's response, and that is, that is counterintuitive, and it's countercultural, right, to the way that we want to deal with conflict today. It might seem like it's a waste of time, right? Doing that, stepping into those things, waste of time. Not going to happen, right? I'm just going to be rejected again. It's impractical. It would take a miracle for it to work. And we would say the same thing about the cross. How can you restore the kingdom? How can you bring restoration in by sacrificing your life, by dying? And yet Jesus didn't listen to, to scoffers. He didn't let cynicism win. He didn't let himself get jaded. He didn't let the pragmatists decide what he was going to do. Instead, he let God define who he was and defend his ministry. That's what he did. And so Paul lets Jesus define who he is and defend his ministry to the Corinthians because Jesus already defined and defended Paul before God himself. Right? This is Jesus' ministry to Paul, and so this becomes Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, that Jesus found Paul not as he wished, murdering Christians, rounding them up, throwing them in prison. And yet he sought not what Paul had, not his stuff, but he sought Paul himself. Jesus became weak so that Paul might become strong. 
He spent himself on Paul in the most literal, possible, total way possible for the sake of his soul. Jesus let others think that he failed the test, right? On the cross so that, that on the other side of the resurrection, they might be restored to Jesus, right? That's what Jesus does for Paul. It's what Jesus does for us, for all of us that's in this room, so that we might be defined who we are by him and our ministry, our work might be defended by him. And that's already occurred, already been accomplished on the cross through the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus' ministry becomes our ministry. As new creations, we get a new job of reconciliation and restoration. So we can't separate ministry from relationships. We shouldn't have this fight or flight response and the reality is we don't have to when Jesus is the one who defines us and who defends our work, not the person that we're in conflict with, not the person who's slandering us, not the person who has sinned against us, not the person who attributes false motives or misunderstands us. We let Jesus define who we are and what we're going to do in those relationships, not them. This is the nature of ministry, of Jesus' ministry and ours for the sake of restoration. All right, so that might lead us to a next question, though, of, so what does it look like, then, when Jesus does show up and want to do work and restore relationships? What should we expect that to look like when we do enter into those spaces? What does it look like when restoration is underway? And this is the second point for today, is that throughout this passage and in this letter, Paul reveals to us the power of God. So the Corinthians were hungry. They were hungry to see the, the power of God of Jesus at work among them. All right, they were not impressed with what they had seen thus far. Paul did some works, cool. Other churches are getting more. It'd be great if we got some more of those, right? They're wanting more of the miraculous supernatural stuff to show up in their midst. Uh, They were seeking proof that Christ was speaking in Paul. That's what Paul writes in this passage. Since you seek proof that Christ is actually the one in me that's that's talking to you, right? So they didn't believe that that Jesus was the one. If if he was there, Paul would sound very different, right, than what he's saying right now. So, so they were wanting more of Jesus, so they thought, to show up within their community. And this is a theme, again, throughout the whole letters, that they're challenging Paul's authority because they believed that if Jesus was the one at work, they'd be seeing something different, something more from, from Paul. He would be a better order. He would be eloquent and persuasive. He would be upper class. He would take some of that money, right? And, and prove himself to be in an upper class that they're not embarrassed to associate with instead of being this schmuck working class guy that they looked down on. He would do more mighty works and miracles in their midst. He would bring about with him less trouble and less calamity and he would suffer a lot less if Jesus was, was with him. He would be less meek and more bold all the time in what he said. And the kicker is that he would be more like them. More like the, the super apostles that were in their midst. The problem with that, Jesus' power is impressive. He is the creator of the universe. He is God and king and ruler of all. His power is impressive. But he doesn't use his power to impress us. That's not his aim, is to impress us, to meet or exceed our expectations and what we think he should do or what we think he ought to do, or what it would look like if 
he showed up because the reality is, if we took those expectations, what the Corinthians wanted to see from Paul, Jesus doesn't have those either. He was a great teacher, for sure. He was not rhetorically trained like the great Greek and Roman orators of the time. He was not eloquent and persuasive in that manner. He was certainly not upper class. He did miracles, sure, but he also retreated and got away by himself. And he also said, I'm done for the day. And when it came to using his power to save himself, to spare himself from suffering, he refused to do it. And he did suffer. Trouble and calamity followed him around. He was certainly bold and yet meek in a million ways that no one would expect. And there is no one that Jesus wanted to be like except himself and his father, right? And so Jesus himself doesn't pass this test that the Corinthians weren't wanting Jesus to show up in their community, but rather someone or something else that that they thought Jesus would look like. And so that leaves them unimpressed. That leaves them unimpressed with not just Paul, but that leaves them unimpressed with Jesus. When's the last time you were impressed by Jesus? How many of us are unimpressed with the way he's showing up in our lives right now? In our communities, in our groups, in our church, in our city? Are we, are we unimpressed with the work that he's doing and that he's up to? What does that mean about who or, or what we're wanting to show up in our lives in our community. Who is it that we're wanting to be a part of that? To go back to our little squirrel friend, right? So he's frolicking on the the power line, completely, totally unaware of the electric current that's flowing underneath him in a crazy way, Uh, unaware of it, underappreciating the voltage that's surging underneath him as he's just trying to get to a tree and and snag an acorn. And if he happens to uh, access that power in some way, that voltage, uh, it's going to be an unexpected result, right? Uh, it's going to hurt a little bit. It'll be kind of painful. Not because uh, there's anything wrong with the power, right? It doesn't hurt because there's something wrong with the electricity. It's good. It's doing what it's supposed to do, taking current where it's supposed to go and letting us microwave our popcorn and whatever else that we want to do. The power of God is, is also good. It is restorative, and yet sometimes it's painful when it shows up, even though it is good, especially when... When our wires are crossed, and, and, and the Corinthians, their wires were, were way crossed. Sin was abundant. Expectations were all over the place in their church. And so they had no idea what they were asking for when they wanted Jesus to show up. They didn't know what they were asking, what he could and was trying to do. And honestly, like, there would be pretty unexpected results if he did show up in their midst. So look. Paul is very clear. His authority is for upbuilding. He says that two times in this passage. He said that a ton in the letter. His authority is for building up, explicitly not for tearing down. And Paul has also been very clear. He has warned those who have sinned and everyone else when he's been there and in letters, right, that that if things don't change, like something's going to happen, right? He says, uh, let no charge be uh, established unless there's a, a two or three witnesses. That was a general practice in the courts. And that day, you have to have a couple witnesses before you say, hey, this guy did something to me, and for that to be admitted into the court. Paul has visited them now two times. He is, he is treating his visits, his time among them, his face time with them, as witnesses in a trial, not for them, but against them. And he's like, I'm coming back a third time. 
as the third and potentially final witness against you. He does not want to be severe when he comes, right? He says that he doesn't want to use his authority that God gave him for building up to tear them down. He doesn't want it to be severe, but if they don't repent, then he's not going to spare them since they seek proof that Christ is speaking in him. This is the the squirrel thing, right? Like, I'll show you what Jesus has to say. You want to know what he has to say, what he wants to do in this? I'll show you, right? Just like the squirrel unexpectedly stumbles upon the power of an electric line. It's probably going to be painful. And yet, and yet it's not there to destroy. It's, it's there to restore. That power wants to show up to restore. Jesus' power, Paul's authority, and the permission and the responsibility that we have as a church to speak to one another in Christ, for the sake of Christ, all those things are for restoration, are for good, are for building up. It's not something that we should be afraid of, that we ought to be destroyed by. We ought not to feel guilty or shame when we receive those words or feel like we have to to give those words. We are all maturing and yet all called to help each other mature, even when it hurts or comes with strong words. Calls to repentance are invitations to leave our old selves in the ground and live as new creations. It's the power of God among us. Paul writes, Jesus isn't weak in dealing with you, Corinthians, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Power wasn't lacking in Corinth. It was already there, among them, working powerfully, dealing with them. Uh, The power was not waiting. Jesus was not waiting for Paul to come with a a harsh word. It was there in kindness and in patience. When Paul was working signs of a true apostle with utmost patience, when he mourns instead of retaliates, when he does all those things, that is God's power at work among them to restore them so that they might be impressed Not by things on the outside, but be impressed by the work of the cross and the empty tomb. Jesus' power is present and it's it's powerful and it's dealing with us here, all of us here in this room today. In dealing with others, right? It shows up in the way that we get to deal with others. In calling them, the, the resurrection lets us call them to new life, right? To say, hey, the spirit is in you. Right? Live and walk in this newness of light. Live according to the Spirit and according to truth. And we also get to do that in weakness, the weakness that we get to come before the cross and say we get to do this in humility and in service and knowing that it's not our words or our power that's going to make this happen, but it's the power of Jesus. We don't get to destroy the person in front of us. We get to seek their restoration and build them up to lead people to be impressed by the cross and the empty tomb, not us. And when we're the ones that need to be dealt with, we get to receive those words, whether in kindness or whether in severity, as as words that lead us to restoration, to build us up and not to destroy us. We get to be led to the cross where our sin is atoned for, guilt is wiped away, and forgiveness is what we get to receive from Jesus, and we get to be brought to the empty tomb where, where Jesus rose from in power and new life, realizing that God can do a work in us and restore us on the inside. It's not just the, the power of Jesus that we often are unaware of or underappreciate 
or unexpected, but it's, it's the sin that is inside of us that we are unaware of and underappreciate and, and happens in unexpected ways. So Paul reveals the power of God that, that goes to work uh, in us, whether it's, whether it's welcome and, and painless or whether it's painful, all for our restoration, not destruction, right? The ministry that we have is not condemnation, it is righteousness, It's of good news that leads to inner renewal, not destruction. And it leaves us impressed, not with stuff on the outside, but leaves us impressed with Jesus, with who he really is on the cross, in the empty tomb, reigning, promising to come back to restore all things. And that leads us to the third point, is that Paul, in this letter, has revealed what is inside us. So there's obviously... Uh, this letter born uh, out of anguish and sorrow and tears and strife and all sorts of things because their relationships, right, are marked by those things too. And so uh, it will always be our fleshly response to want to respond to broken relationships in fight uh, or in flight, right, in the way that we minister to others. We are always going to be prone to totally miss uh, what Jesus might actually want to do in those broken relationships, especially when we are the ones involved in them. And, and chances are, uh, it's always going to be our inclination to never look inward to see if we're seeing things rightly. And so Paul says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, right? It's always our lenses that we should be most concerned with. Are we seeing this rightly, right? Are we discerning this correctly? Are we desiring the right things? Because look, if we recognize Jesus in us, his motives, his desires, what he was like, if we see that in us and what we want to do with others, then that means we're going to operate with Jesus' power and want him to show up in all the ways he wants to show up. And that also means then we're going to minister like Jesus and enter into those broken relationships for the sake of restoration. But if we don't, if we don't get that first one right, we're going to examining ourselves is the most important thing to do, and yet it's the easiest thing that we forget. And so just to clarify, the test all right, that he is, he is prescribing is not, hey, can Jesus save you, right? Does Jesus want to save you? Does he want you in anymore? That's not the test. Jesus can save anybody he wants to. There's no one that's apart from his grace, right? And once he has you, he does not let go. That, that's not the test. The test is, is Jesus in you? He assumes that he, that, that he is in the Corinthians, which is crazy, he assumes that Jesus is in the Corinthians after all this stuff, unless he's not, he says. And maybe he's not. Maybe Jesus isn't in us. Maybe he's not in the Corinthians. Or maybe he is, and, and we're just not listening to him in that moment. Maybe we're not following him, not letting him lead or disciple us in these relationships. Either way, no matter what it is, his hope is that we would be brought to Jesus, that we would turn to him in faith, that he might disciple us and lead us into new life. And so, so what's the test? What are the questions, right? What do we ask ourselves to get this? Well, it's, honestly, it's, I think it's Paul's closing exhortation to the Second Corinthians. Rejoice. Aim for restoration. Agree with one another. Comfort one another. Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's jarring, knowing all of the jacked up stuff that's going on in that church to expect that they would do that. To expect they would live in such a way. Like, what the heck? You just ripped into them, right? For their good. Now rejoice. For our kids, uh, when they 
use their hands to not help one another but hurt each other. Uh, it's one of the ways that we phrase that. Or whatever. They're just being mean to each other. Sometimes we'll make them hold hands or hug or whatever. And they have to say like, I'm so glad that I have a brother. I'm so glad that I have a sister. Right? We're best friends for life. Like, that's what we make them say. Do they feel that in the moment? Probably not. Are they reminded sometimes as they're saying that? Yeah, they are. The reality is, though, like, we don't want to just correct them and tear them down, but we want to point them to the positive thing that we're aiming for, what's true about their relationship, what ought to be their desire, how they ought to live, how they ought to feel about their siblings. So we want to point them to those things. And the reality is if if these things are true, these closing exhortations might be true about the Corinthians, if they're true about us and the way we feel about our broken relationships, then chances are Jesus is in us. Because those things are are what he wants for us. The grace of Jesus, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit, right? The the last line in his letter uh, will be with you all. That's what he wants for the Corinthians. And so we get to consider the people in our lives, the, the broken relationships, people we've sinned against, folks that, that, that have sinned against us, the way we've been under, misunderstood, do we want those things for that relationship? Can we envision holy kisses and side hugs and rejoicing with those? If that seems like a distant reality, if that seems impossible, which it might for many of you, if it seems jarring to think about, we get to fast forward a little bit. Because we're not awaiting Paul's return, we're awaiting the return of Jesus, his, his visit to us, where he will reveal the intentions of our hearts and what's actually going on in here. He's going to reveal his power in a way that we've never seen before and the fruit of our ministry, what's left of the things that we've built and we've put our hands to over the years. Jesus is coming with a severity to banish evil and to banish sin from the world. He's also coming with kindness and grace to restore all who surrender to that grace. And that includes our relationships. No sin, no second guessing, no cynicism, no bitterness or callousness or any of those things. Instead of fight and flight, we get to stay in love. We get to have a holy kiss with that person you never thought you would have a holy kiss with. Or a Christian side hug, whatever you're most uh, comfortable with saying. This future reality, this is the hope of the church. And the reality is we don't have to punt that hope or that reality as if it's only Jesus' future work to do because, because it is Jesus' work to do. It is our work to do. It's precisely because it's Jesus' work that it is our work. It's our ministry, and it doesn't begin when he comes back, but it began at the resurrection. And it continues with us that Jesus lives by the power of God, that he's powerful among us, and that we will live by him. Restoration isn't only the hope of the church, it's the work of the church. So we get to come back and, and today close out this letter um, and leave 2 Corinthians, this series where Paul left his letter to, to examine ourselves. Is Jesus in us to restore us? By, man, by, by, are, are we impressed by Jesus in his power? Is that where we're wanting to show up in our communities, in our relationships? Are we embracing a ministry that looks like Jesus, that moves in to restore and work on relationships as much as work through them? In the midst of this mess, in the Corinthians church, and in the midst of our lives and our church, not after it's cleaned up, but right here and right now, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit gets to be with us all now and forever for our joy, for God's glory, and for the restoration of all things. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this letter and the words that you've delivered to us that we have not just a hope that that never fails, but we have a work um, that one day will end, that you will accomplish and complete for us, but you invited us to be a part of those things. And so, God, as we uh, just sit and pray, uh, as we listen for you, as we speak with you, as we consider and reflect on our lives, as we listen to music, um, man, would you Would you stir in our hearts the places that we need to be restored in, whether it's relationships with people, whether it's our relationship with you for the first time uh, or for the millionth time, God. Allow us to receive your words to us as an invitation into new life, into putting the old man or woman in the ground, and into walking in newness and your power and the new life that you've given us in Jesus. Um, Do a restorative work in us. Allow us to be a church that, that ministers the way that Jesus ministered to us, who loves people the way that he loved people, that we might expect uh, and desire Jesus to show up, you to show up, the Spirit to show up in the ways that you want to show up, and that we would get to come alongside of you as you do those things and rejoice all the way. We thank you so much, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.